hppodcraft.com. As soon as the phone stops ringing, I'll begin this affidavit. Lord, it's hot in here. Perhaps I should open a window. Thirteen rings. It has a sense of humor. I suppose that ought to be comforting. Somehow, I'm not comforted. If it feels free to indulge in these teasing, tormenting little games, so much the worse for me. The summer is over now, but this room is like an oven. My shirt is already drenched, and this pen feels slippery in my hand. In a moment or two, the little drop of sweat that's collecting above my right eyebrow is going to splash onto this page. Just the same, I'll keep the window closed. Outside, through the dusty panes of glass, I can see a boy in red spectacles sauntering toward the courthouse steps. Perhaps there's a telephone booth in back. The sense of humor. That's one quality I never noticed in it. I saw only a deadly seriousness and, it's clear, an intelligence that grew at terrifying speed, malevolent, and inhuman. If it now feels itself safe enough to toy with me before doing whatever it intends, so much the worse for me. So much the worse, perhaps, for us all. I hope I'm wrong. Though my name is Jeremy, derived from Jeremiah, I'd hate to be a prophet in the wilderness. I'd much rather be a harmless crank. But I believe we're in for trouble. Ah, yes, trouble. And its dreaded popomatic bubble. <laughs> the horrors it has wrought. Hmm, it seems you're referencing a classic board game commercial for comedic effect. I am. Employing a sense of humor. <laughs> I suppose that ought to be comforting. <laughs> but it is not comforting. Nor is anything comforting in the story we're about to cover. A 1972 novella that many call a modern weird fiction classic. That's right. We're talking about T.E.D. Klein's The Events at Porth Farm. And we are talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. You know, in that opening, it describes an intelligence that grows at terrifying speed, mm-hmm. malevolent and inhuman. I think that's also a great description for today's guest. <laughs> hey With us covering this story is the one, the only... Ken Height. Thanks, guys. Oh, thanks for coming on. Man, we, we can't wait to talk to you about this story. Thanks for saving this great story for me. We missed you. I haven't seen you guys since Chicago, since our legendary live show. Since we rocked that city the way it needed to be rocked. Uh, Ken, I believe you have an upcoming project that would interest our listeners. I have an ongoing Kickstarter. Yes, tell us more. The, uh, the Kickstarter has begun for Tour to Lovecraft The Destination, <gasps> which is the sequel to Tour to Lovecraft the Tales, which you have often been so good as to reference. This is a expansion and completion of the Lost in Lovecraft essays that I was doing for oh, Weird Tales back yes. when it was a going concern and when I was writing for it. Yes. So I'm taking the 13 or 14 essays that appeared in Weird Tales. I'm adding the rest of the essays that were planned to be in that, uh, in that series. And then assuming that our Kickstarter backers are benevolent, we will keep adding essays. And we will also, I believe if you go to the Kickstarter page uh, right now, you will see that we have added some new stuff to Tour to Lovecraft the Tales. We're adding some of the collaborations and some other stuff like that in various stretch goals. Go check out my Kickstarter for Tour to Lovecraft the Destinations. More Lovecraft will be raining down upon you 
shortly. Please, folks, go check it out. Go support this excellent project. I'm sorry. I, I see angels weeping with joy right now. I've had a vision, <laughs> and it is glorious. Did you see them before? Is this a neurological thing? Should we be concerned? Uh, yeah, probably. But let's not talk about it. <laughs> it's best to just ignore problems like this when they surface. Yeah. Yes, that's. we find that the best way to deal with problems is to ignore them completely. Hey, I'd also like to thank our reader today. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> Andrew Staten. He's an excellent actor. He'll be along with us for this whole ride as we do Porth Farm. And uh, you can check out Andrew in the film Clown Town. It's now streaming on Amazon. I highly recommend that you put your children in front of it and just leave the room. <laughs> let them watch it. As you can tell from the title, it's obviously a children's movie. Clown Town. <laughs> check it out. Thanks, Andrew, for doing the readings today. Now, quick bit on this story. It's pretty recent as far as the fiction we cover oh, goes, right? Yeah. 1972. So yeah. it's not available for free online. I read it in the uh, Cthulhu Mythos Mega Pack, which is an ebook that's available on Amazon for like 99 cents. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've used it on the show before, but I'm sure this is available in a number of other anthologies. Well, another one you can use is the American Supernatural Tales Anthology from Penguin Classics, edited by our old buddy S.T. Joshi. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, now, this story, just real quick, was also, he developed this into a larger novel, and I was trying to find that the other day, and that was impossible to find. You should, oh, the ceremonies. I encourage everyone to. I, I actually may have it in hardback and in paperback. That's how much I love that novel. Uh, rub it in our faces. I'm gonna. I'm <laughs> well, gonna. there was some uh, controversy here between Chris and I about doing this story, because we oh. don't cover living authors. We have not done that. But I felt that this was an old enough story, It's and it's certainly uniquely suited to our show our format. Yeah. It is completely within the Mackin uh, MR James tradition. It is a, a classic in structure, classic in, in subject matter, classic in concern. It, as we will find as we go forward, it also very much deliberately interrogates and involves itself with classics of horror literature. So yeah. why not? Any there excuse you go. to talk this great story is a great excuse as far as I'm concerned. And if if Ted Klein is listening, we love you. You are a magical genius. I love him. Or from this story, I love him. I don't know what, what other stuff he's written or oh, done. You can find uh, his collection, Dark Gods, four more stories. And I would say almost as good, maybe even vanishingly close to as good as this story, which is magnificent. I don't think there's a bad line in any of them. They're, hmm. they're just all magnificent. Wow. Well, Joshi wrote, uh, in close to 25 years of writing, Klein has only two books and a handful of scattered tales to his credit, and yet his achievement towers gigantically over that of his more prolific contemporaries. And you'd agree with that assessment? Absolutely. And Ted, we can say Ted, right? We don't have to say T-E-D. The E uh, stands for Ibon. He was christened Theodore Donald and added the E for Ibon so that his initials would uh, spell something because he knew that he was going to be a horror writer and a horror writer of the multiply initialed stripe. And so he wanted his initials to spell something cool as opposed to having people say TD all the time, which he probably got tired of growing up in New York. Right. So HP, MR, James, TD Klein. No, TED Klein, Ted Klein. Klein, and then you could call him Ted and everything's great. So yes. And he was the editor of uh, Twilight Zone magazine. Which yeah, the founding editor of Twilight Zone. Yeah, I remember picking that up and reading it at the Book Emporium when I was a kid. I, I oh, loved that magazine. The Book Emporium. Uh, he did a bunch of great stuff. I mean, first sort of forming the magazine sensibility and printing a lot of authors, but also he would write book reviews in, in the magazine uh, to sort of turn people on to stuff. And of course, even in the 80s, horror was as much a reprint genre as it was a new genre. Mm-hmm. So was, he's, he's somewhat reclusive, if I'm not incorrect about that right joshi has described him as reclusive and joshi and he are friends so i guess that's okay (laughs) i 
<laughs> Given the number of people who have wrongly described Lovecraft as reclusive, I'm right. unwilling to just sort of bandy that around unless you're literally like J.D. Salinger and you're putting up a giant sign in front of your house saying, I am a recluse. Right. Then I don't feel like I want to just say someone who just wants to stay off social media and live their life and do their job yes. is reclusive. Well, let's uh, let's get into the story. Into the story. It starts off in a very Lovecraftian way. This guy, Jeremy, is writing a statement. Uh, he's gone through some horrific experience, and now he is going to write it down. As we heard at the top, he has locked himself in a hotel room, and he seems very paranoid. Yeah, there's a boy with red spectacles that he's keeping an eye on. He thinks maybe this kid is the one calling him and letting it ring 13 times. He feels he's being toyed with before ultimately being gotten, killed. At this point, we don't know. It's a really powerful opening, I think, and it sets up a couple of things. Primarily that whatever this malignant thing is, that it's got a sense of humor, and that makes it all the more terrifying. So, so why do you think that is, that it's scary because this thing has a sense of humor? At the first, what it does is it means that if it's doing something to Jeremy, it's not just sort of random, that it's targeted. That if it's got a sense of humor, it's toying with him. And if it's toying with you, that means it knows that you're there, first of all, which you don't like in a monster. Mm -hmm. Second of all, it knows that it can crush you at will, which you certainly don't like in a monster. No. And then if it's toying with you and enjoying a joke at your expense, that means it has a, a deliberate cruelty to it. Mm -hmm. And then all that gets put into those first, what, four paragraphs that we now know so much about this creature and we still have no idea what it is, what it can do, anything about it. And we also get the first of many Arthur Mackin references when he talks about a man in spectacles who is a portent of the outside. And that, of course, comes back to Mackin's, I believe it's in The Three Imposters, that there's a, a young man in spectacles who plays a, a sort of an important part in the story as a, as a weird harbinger of events. Mm -hmm. And then Mackin said, uh, this is how I know my life was screwed up as I met the young man in spectacles from my fiction in the street. That was a weird sign to me that I'd been going off the rails. Anything Klein puts in here, as we mentioned up top, he knows the field amazingly well. So if there's something in there and you think, I wonder if that's an allusion to an obscure bit in an Arthur Mackin or Arthur Mackin diary or letter. Yes, it is. It is. All right. <laughs> By the way, the way you framed that leads me to believe that somewhere you have a list of things you do like in a monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, obviously, um, uh, hate, for, hate for my enemies. That's yeah. a humor. Like that in a monster. Um, you know, nice eyes. Obviously, you got to go on a date first, see if there's compatibility, sure, see if there's sure. chemistry. <laughs> well, I think also important in that intro is that the main character references himself in relation to the prophet Jeremiah, who is present in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And religion and its stifling nature is present throughout the story. But this character in particular of Jeremiah, I, he was sort of a Cassandra figure, right? I mean, he never had anything good to say. And folks were always after him for pretending doom. Is that a, <laughs> I'm not a biblical, biblical scholar, so is that a correct assessment? Yeah, Jeremiah pr predicts disaster for the, for the children of Israel. But the word Jeremiah is a lengthy discussion of how your sins have found you out and you're going to be destroyed. And that's what a Jeremiah is. Gotcha. And nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. And they didn't want to hear it in the 6th century BC and they don't want to hear it now. Well, I think Jeremy may find himself in a similar position in this story in that what he's got to tell is not very hopeful for humanity. We find out that he is in this hotel, which is in Flemington, New Jersey. He says that there are hippies hanging around the courthouse steps, which he can see from his window. So this is obviously a, a modern story, modern being around when it was written, 1972, because there are hippies. Uh, yeah, it's pretty firmly in the 70s. And he references that Bruno Hauptmann was tried on in this courthouse in 1935 and walked these steps. So uh, who's that? That is the alleged, as people will insist online if we don't say it now, but mm -hmm. uh, convicted, 
uh, kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby. Uh, uh-huh. Charles Lindbergh's uh, infant son was kidnapped from his house. Bruno Hauptmann, a carpenter who'd been doing some repairs, had a, a foreign-sounding last name, which is obviously right there. That's means and motive. <laughs> they uh, believe that he kidnapped the kid and uh, was involved in the attempt to ransom the kid back to Charles Lindbergh for gold certificates. The child died during the the kidnapping, and Hauptmann uh, was executed for it. Jeremy says he's a long way from the wilderness now, so we know that he's just left some rural environment to get out here in the city of Flemington. Jeremy goes on to say that for several days, he's been afraid to leave his hotel room. There is some kid that's hanging out on the steps, and he's wearing red glasses. And this is obviously a young Matt Murdock. Jeremy goes on to say that he can't see where the boy is looking, uh, but he knows that he's looking at him. And I guess that is because he's using his radar sense. Well, we know that since this is a boy and not like some brutish UFC looking guy, that Jeremy's not scared because he's under threat of some physical attack. It's this malevolent force. Unless he's a really weak dude and like a child could beat him up. Yes. As we will see, Jeremy is not the guy you necessarily want to have at your side in a horror novel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's true. No. But uh, he, he's thinking he's going to this thing that he's writing, he's going to sneak out, he's going to mail it, and then he's going to leave New Jersey forever. He hopes to be able to do that. Jeremy talks about how there are still mysterious places in New Jersey. Uh, to the west, there are miles of untamed forest, swamplands to the south. And behind those swamplands are hamlets never visited by outsiders, pockets of ignorance, some of them citadels of ancient superstition utterly cut off from news of New York and the rest of the state. Religious communities where customs haven't changed appreciably since the days of their settlement a century or more ago. Here, I feel like he's doing a picture in the house Dunwich horror kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it gets even more Dunwichy in the next paragraph where he says, As you speed down one of the state highways, consider how few of the cars slow down for the local roads. And you're like, okay, the local roads, that means the town is creepy. And consider, too, how some of the local traffic turns off onto the narrow roads that emerge without warning from the woods. And it's like, oh, wow, even Dunwich people don't know about this town. And when those untraveled side roads lead into others still deeper in wilderness, and when those in turn give way to dirt roads deserted for weeks on end. And so we're now, I think, five levels into the desolation (laughs) in this one paragraph. He is out Dunwiching. I mean, with Dunwich, you just take the wrong fork at Dean's Corners and you've gone through Dunwich. This you literally have to go the wrong fork like five times to get there to get to Gilead. It's a great section because it effectively brings the horror to the reader and that it says even if you're in the city, even if you think modernity can save you, the horror is still close enough to touch you. It's just a few bends around the corner in the woods. Modern things like phones and televisions have connected these communities to greater civilization. Most of them, at least some of these communities want to be hidden away. It's one of those small towns that Jeremy ended up in. As a New Yorker, he had enough of the hustle and bustle and needed to take a break. So for three months, he was going to stay just outside of the small town of Gilead. And again, my Bible studies are bad. I remember the line, is there balm in Gilead from the raven? But I can't remember what it's about. What is the significance of Gilead? Gilead is the the land promised to the Hebrews, according to the Hebrews, and they should know they were there. Mm. The the stretch east of the Jordan, and it is a fertile area because it's right there. And so the land of Gilead is... Uh, it becomes a, a synecdoche for the notion of comfort in God's embrace, that you're in this promised land, and gotcha. not only does it produce the standard milk and honey, it also produces balm, it produces an ointment that, that takes away all your cares. Uh-huh. And so metaphorically, that becomes uh, righteous living, the balm in Gilead. And so when you say, is there no balm in Gilead, is there no way to, to make you feel better, then the answer uh-huh. had better be, get right with the Lord. And that's where your uh-huh. Jeremiah would say. Gotcha. Me. So Jeremy talks of the myth of the secretive town, where 
people supposedly go to these small towns and everybody's really quiet, hush, hush. And when they look at outsiders askew and they don't say anything, but he says, you know what? You go into these small towns and everybody will pretty much talk your ear off. Yeah. And when he's talking about the secret of town folk, he makes these two references. The Bavarian village where peasants turn away from tourist queries about the castle and silently cross themselves. The New England harbor town where fishermen feign ignorance and cast furtive glances at the traveler. So two stories we've never heard of. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Two stories that must remain untold, I guess. We'll never know what's in that cast. We'll never know what he's referencing. No. Not at all. Now, we'll find out that this character was reading fiction all summer while he was in Gilead, which is undoubtedly dripped into his writing, I think, which is part of this genius. You know, the way he's presenting his narrative, it's got these weird fiction tropes, but it does this with the really modern and non-indulgent writing style. The story starts with, even now the monster is stalking, and then describes the mysterious towns of backwoods New England. And this is the first trope, however, he pushes back against, because town folk love talking about stuff that's going on in their town. He goes on to say that even in Gilead, he's staying with people who are considered outsiders by the Gilead people. Right. Right. That Sar and his wife, Deborah, are sort of on the edge of Gilead community, that they'd gone out of town. Deborah had been an educated person. She'd gone to community college. They owned a television. So they are sort of on this bubble between the, in theory, safety of this little town where people are happy to talk to you once you respect them, Mm -hmm. and where in theory there would be balm or there would be any kind of recourse. But the Poroth, sadly, Poroth Farm is is not such a place. It's, (laughs) It's in the middle of these dank woods that we talked about earlier. Right. And so in this intro, we know that something horrible happened while he was there. But let's get into it. Let's roll back because that's what he does here. Let's let's find out. What's the setup? Jeremy lived for the summer at Porth Farm with Sar Porth and his wife, Deborah. His plan was to do a lot of reading and studying while he was there. The house was so secluded that to get to the main to get to the main road, you had to go down a three mile dirt road. That's <laughs> three miles. He saw an ad that they put out in the newspaper and he came and checked out the house. They had a a small shack outside of their farmhouse, which they were going to rent. It was an old chicken house, but the poorest, when they bought the farm, they decided to make it into a guest house. So they converted it. Jeremy was their first tenant. (laughs) And foreshadowing, their last. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The poorest were Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, Sar had the whole beard with no mustache thing going on. And Deborah had long hair, but wore it in a bun. Uh, They were in their early 30s, just a bit older than Jeremy. They're very pale and have this inky black hair, which is weird that they're so pale because they're in the sun all day as farmers. But uh, Jeremy thinks this unhealthy look may be due to the inbreeding that happens in the area, of course. And in fact, I think the two are third cousins. Yeah. They resemble each other quite a bit. And when he was there, he didn't really talk with them about their religious beliefs. Jeremy's not really a religious guy. He's very skeptical. uh, So they didn't talk about it. And he's not exactly sure what they believed exactly. Yeah, they're Mennonites, kind of like the Amish outwardly, but he thinks there's some differences between them and the Amish. But what he could figure out is that they were very liberal compared to the rest of their religion. Sar had his degree in religious studies, and Deborah spent a few years in community college, which was very unusual for a woman. Uh, Sar wanted to be a teacher, but uh, that didn't really work out, so he sort of fell into farming, even though he wasn't from farming stock. And you don't learn too much about them past this backstory, but it's really tantalizing to me because, I mean, they're they're very withholding. They're not going to reveal how they feel to Jeremy. But I wonder, was it a huge disappointment that they were sucked back into this town? How does she feel about Sar not being able to get a teaching job? Are they mad already when we meet them that they didn't make it in the modern world? This is something where 
I think that he is sort of reaching out not just to the past of horror that we're going to get even deeper into, but into sort of the current horror. This is post Amityville. This is once the economic privation has come in as a motive in haunted mm-hmm. house stories, mm-hmm. and it gets. And I think uh, Thomas Tryon does it in Harvest Home that the people are I've bought too much house and they can't afford it and they have to stay in this little town. And so that is the era when this suddenly becomes a driver. And so the notion that even without Jeremy, Sar and Deborah are just like the protagonists of every Blumhouse movie that you see now, where they've mm. got a house, something's gone wrong in the past, they don't talk about it, but now they're back in this house mm-hmm. and they have to sort of make a go of it and they're not very good at it. And their financial precariousness, and in this case, their precariousness in regards to the community, mm-hmm. are going to isolate them and make them vulnerable on a sort of story level or on a metafictional level to the horror, whatever it is. And that is one of the things that is, I think anyone can read this story and say, oh my gosh, what a great throwback story. But to read it and see these sort of contemporary touchstones that he keeps reaching out and and connecting to the modern time. And in a way that the story really is a story of its time as well as a story from the great days of Mac and, and James. I think that's one of the great things about it is that you you get this sense and that he doesn't push it. You read it, it gets into your subconscious, but mm-hmm. he doesn't have them you exactly. know complaining about money or something, which would then ruin the the, the characterization that he builds up of Sarah and Deborah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. You mentioned that they were ba- they were very good at what they do. They are bad farmers. They have around ninety yes. acres, but most of the land was forest or overgrown. Uh, he had a cornfield that he was planning on seeding that year, but he was going to have to borrow some equipment to do so. But the poorest, they have seven cats. They are described as the poorest's great love, which I think is a little odd for farm cats to be doted over. You know, my sister has a farm. They did, the cats are just there. <laughs> I, I think it says something about their relationship. And, and the cats are obviously used as a mechanism in the story. But the fact that these are their children, these are the things they dote over. I feel like they're not talking to each other. They're talking to the cats. Mm-hmm. And that there may be something that maybe Deborah can't have kids. Yes. Right, for whatever reason. And because yeah. one assumes that Amish and Mennonites are very much about having a family and, and bringing up the next generation in the way that they should be. And if Deborah can't have kids, then that's another way to separate her from the town's mainstream and the social community that she wants to be part of, but kind of can't. Right. And for both of them, it's also, it's this expression of failure. They couldn't make it in the real world. They're not even making it in this community. So Jeremy goes on to say that they were both tall and pale, but very much opposites. Deborah was talkative and friendly while Sar was quiet and reserved. For both of them, they, they like to drink, which is odd. It's not mm-hmm. forbidden by this particular faith. He goes out of his way to say that the drinking is not forbidden, that they are outsiders, but they are not heretics. Yeah. But when they're drinking, you know, these differences are really highlighted. She is really talkative. He gets a little more sullen and withdrawn. Jeremy suggests the best way to tell a story is by using his journal that he kept while living on the farm. He says that the only writing he did was in his journal to keep track of what he read more than anything. Yeah, he's doing notes on what he's reading. But of course, everything that he's experiencing creeps into it. He was planning on teaching a course at Trenton State in the fall, so his reading was related to that. Now he asks if he will actually be doing any teaching in the fall after all. And the course is on the Gothic tradition and literature. So he's going off for secluded study to read through books where people doing the same thing he's doing get into lots of trouble, right? So he rented a car to move his stuff. It also started off great. It says how pleasant things were at the beginning. That tees up our journal entries. So the first journal entry is June 4th. He talks about moving in and how the place was infested with spiders. 
He killed them all and jokes about the revenge of the spiders and how someone will, they'll see a body covered with spiders and they'll say, Egad, man, that face, that bloody torn face, the missing eyes, it looks like, no, Jeremy. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, you know, an indicator right off the bat that it's sort of a page right out of those weird tales, mm-hmm. the italicized ending. And he also talks about the million moths at the window and how one of them is as big as a small bird. So it's like right away, there's an immediate threat coming from the insects. And they're, and they're sort of setting up the fact that it's not just society, like in Dunwich, that's going to be coming after you. It's, in a way, the world of nature that's mm-hmm. also inimical. You know, you can't say, oh, no, it's just because mankind has invaded this perfect garden that it has become evil. It's like, no, everything is evil. <laughs> the first day, he had supper with the ports. They talk about crops, insect, humidity, SARS plan of building a bigger house one day. When Deborah has a baby, maybe in three or four years— Deborah jokes that the cats are their surrogate children, and of course, Jeremy is allergic to them, but he does like them. Jeremy also finds out that they believe in modern medicine. The meal is good. Jeremy says Deborah is a good cook and a handsome woman. Oh, yeah. There's a sexual undercurrent in the story. It's not overplayed, but I mean, just even the fact that there's this younger, unrelated man who's now part of their domestic scene Mm -hmm. suggests it. But here we know at least that Jeremy finds her attractive, and he certainly likes her personality more. Mm-hmm. It's just enough to plant that seed of potential unrest. I think it just ratchets up the tension right away. The fact that he finds her attractive. But it's very subtle. You don't yeah. really notice it when you're reading. You're just reading it and it creeps into your subconscious like Ken was saying. And I think it's a, it's, it's, it's an experience that I think is really interesting as a single person hanging out with a couple, how that actually does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. After dinner, he talks about the fireflies on the lawn and arranging his books on the shelf. He brings up the mysteries of Udolfo as what he was reading. This is what he has to say about it. Uh, we haven't covered this story on the show. Radcliffe has an unfortunate penchant for explaining away all of her ghosts and apparitions. Really a mistake and a bore. All in all, not exactly the most fascinating reading, though a good study in romanticism. Montoni, the typical Byronic hero villain, but can't demand the students read Udolfo too long. In fact, had to keep reminding myself to slow down. I have patience with a book. Try to put myself in frame of mind of the 1794 reader with plenty of time on his hands. It sounds so much like you reviewing a story on the show. <laughs> I had no patience. It just went on and on and on and on. Yeah. And then and then uh, chattered over us. No, put yourself in the mind of the 1794. Exactly. <laughs> that book is referenced in supernatural horror and literature. It's it on is. our list of things to cover, but it's the longer ones we've always kind of avoided. Yes. It is something of a slog, as uh, he points out. And it explains away the supernatural as just a Scooby-Doo situation. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a supernatural story. And perhaps it is a coincidence, but I do not believe so, that it comes that the first reference, well, after the reference to Vathek that happens just sort of during the conversation, Mm -hmm. is this reference to Udolfo, which is saying, oh, no, there's nothing supernatural going on here. It's just normal behavior, Mm -hmm. which sets him up metaphorically. Earlier in the story, he said... If you ask these uh, people in these rural people who love to talk about what happened, they'll tell you that the the well water was polluted and the crops failed and that there'd been domestic depression and just murder happened. But that's just normal. Mm-hmm. And in, in the same way that Lovecraft at the beginning of, say, Honor of the Dark says, now you have to remember that everyone in the story is an artist and therefore their testimony is invalid because they're crazy people. Mm-hmm. And what probably just happened is a lightning strike and a bunch of superstition. And then you're like, oh, I know something else is going to happen. But he's doing the same thing that Lovecraft is doing structurally with this. And by introducing Udolfo and saying, but it's probably nothing. And then he says, but put yourself in the mind of a 1794 reader. 
with lots of time on their hands and hands a lantern on it. And he says, it works too. I do have plenty of time out here. And already I can <laughs> yeah. feel myself beginning to unwind. He's walking into a gothic fiction and he knows he's doing it and he's doing it to himself on purpose. There you go. As he writes, he has to go outside to we. Uh, there's no bathroom in his cabin. And there's no outhouse out there either, right? He has yeah. to just go out and pee. In the that this is the scariest part of the book for me because if he has to do a number two in the middle of the night, he's got to sneak into the farmhouse to uh-huh. use their bathroom, and there's no way the poorets aren't going to wake up when he comes in there. Once they hear the bathroom door, there's no way they don't know what he's doing. So all three of them have to sit there in the dark while he tries to poop as quietly as possible, and that is chilling. <laughs> That's the true horror. When he comes back, he writes about how he felt very vulnerable standing against the dark. And he could see his window from the outside and how his desk lamp is the only light around at all. And how the moths all clamber to the window. And he makes a note to buy some bug spray. And Mm. that takes us into June 11th. Very significant day. We skip ahead a few days. He mentions he's been reading uh, Melmoth the Wanderer, something we have yet to cover on the show. This is what he has to say about it. Some of these old-fashioned gothics are a bit hard to enjoy. The trouble with Melmoth is that it wants you to hate. You're especially supposed to hate Catholics. No doubt its picture of the Inquisition is accurate, but all a book like this can do is put you in an unconstructive rage. Those vicious characters have been dead for centuries, and there's no way to punish them. Still, it's a nice cynical book for those who like atrocity scenes. Starving prisoners forced to eat their girlfriends, etc., and narratives (laughs) within narratives within narratives within narratives. We do like that here. Yeah. Lovecraft talks about this a lot in supernatural horror and literature, but again, we haven't gotten to it. Uh, this review certainly is not motivating me to want to read Melmoth. <laughs> Melmoth is, is better than Mysteries of Udolfo, but it's still, just structurally, these gothics are not written for a modern audience with a phone. It is a lot harder to read them just straightforward and straight through. And as he mentions, because it's nested narratives uh, that Maturin is writing, you get a lot of what seems like sort of going over the same ground, or, or it takes a long time to get to the, the the starving people eating their prisoners and whatnot. Which is what everybody wants to read. The other thing that I want to say about Melmoth here is he's doing again what he just did with Udolfo, where he talks about narratives within narratives. What are we reading right now? We're reading a narrative within a narrative within a narrative, uh-huh. right? We're reading a diary entry that he's polishing in the hotel room that we're reading. Yeah, And Melmoth the Wanderer's curse is a curse that he can pass on if someone takes it from him. Mm -hmm. So the whole notion of curses being passed on is now been brought in. And again, you have to have read Melmoth. This is entirely Klein playing in his own head. Wow. But signposting it, if you if you if you can read the sign, he's just put it out there. That's what's going to happen. My God, man! <laughs> there was a reason I was super happy when you asked me to come up. Wow! This yeah, I just I didn't realize this is was happening. It's amazing. To break things up a bit, he reads some Mackin, the white people. <laughs> Another we have yet to cover on our show, and of course he loves it. He says, "God, what an experience!" I was a little confused by the framing device and all of its high-flown talk of cosmic evil, but the sections from the young girl's notebooks were staggering. That air of paganism, the malevolent little faces peeping in from the shadows, and those rights she can't dare talk about. It's called The White People, and it must be the most persuasive horror tale ever written. And we'll see if that's true or not. We're going to be covering that one next month, finally. Been on the list for a long time. What do you think of that review, Ken? A thousand percent accurate. White People is probably in the top, it's certainly in the top 10 horror stories ever written, and I would maybe put it in the top five. Mackin is terrific. Even without reading the story, I mean, we've got the the young girl's notebook. What are we reading? We're reading a notebook. The Air Mm -hmm. of Paganism, Old Religion, Malevolent Little Faces Peeping In From the Shadows. We've just heard about all the moths and things, Mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, he can't see what might be looking at him. 
and the rights you don't dare talk about, we're setting ourselves up again. Once more, we have this beautiful joining and it gets even more beautiful but let's let's go to the next paragraph afterwards strolling toward the house i was moved to climb the old tree in the side yard the poor oths had already gone in to get dinner ready and stood upright on the great heavy branch near the middle making strange gestures and faces that no one could see can't say exactly what it was i did or why it was just getting dark fireflies below me in a mist rising off the field i must have looked like a madman's shadow as i made signs to the woods and the moon what is that about? He just glosses over the fact that he just, for reasons he doesn't even understand, made some weird gestures, like some signs, some passes, if you will. What did he just say? Rights she can't dare talk about. And what did he just do? He did a right that he can't talk about. And not because he's being threatened or coerced, but because he doesn't know why he did it and he doesn't know what he did. Mm -hmm. He literally can't talk about it because he doesn't understand it. Mm -hmm. I have my own theory as to what happened. It could be, and this is what I love about the story, is that there could be mundane explanations for almost everything that happens. It could just be that he was reading the white people and he was thinking about what things might happen and he was just kind of, you know, being imaginative, you know, like a a kid would do. You know, nothing crazy, nothing supernatural about it, but just because it is within the context of the story, it becomes much more significant. Well, when when we read uh, Charles Dexter Ward, who doesn't sound out the magic phrase that uh, resurrects the dead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know, we've just read a story that that's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> no one has read that story without saying it out loud, right? Right, yeah. Just because it's a cool phrase and it's fun to say. Yeah, yeah. So I think that you're, I think you're right. I think that when you are a imaginative young, he's not even 30 yet, horror reader, and you're out in the creepity Mackin woods, the Mac and Bracken, if you will. And then <laughs> you, you've read white people and you, and you get all charged up with Mackinry. Yeah, maybe you try your, your own version of the, of the green ceremonies. Yeah, exactly. Evening time, he has dinner with the ports. Uh, he offers to help Deborah with the dishes, but she refuses. And he doesn't mind her refusing because he doesn't really want to do the dishes. Because <laughs> he's a jerk. I, I have to admit, this is pretty insightful because I've been there as well, where you're polite, you do the asking, but Deep down, you don't really want to do the dishes. You just yeah. figure that's what you're supposed to do because that's, that is exactly what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and I'm sure he would have done it. And we find out later he does help with the dishes at some point. So it's not an empty offer, but still deep down, nobody wants to do the dishes. Nobody does. He also, the thing that I thought was funny here is that after the dishes are done, they settle in and he watches one of their god-awful TV programs with them. He's very critical of what they watch on television. He thinks it's terrible. He goes back to the cabin and does his nightly bug slaying. He's got bug spray now. He got the spray that says for outdoor use only because he wants the strong stuff. Not sure that it's a good idea to use in a room right before you (laughs) sleep. And I begin to wonder immediately, is this an implication of something that maybe he's poisoning himself a bit. Like if he's spraying tons of bug spray in his room before he goes to bed, maybe he's suffering some of of the effects of a poison and maybe perhaps he's an unreliable narrator. I felt the same way. I thought this is a terrible idea to be spraying industrial strength bug spray in your room. (laughs) And also it sets up the whole, yeah, maybe nothing happened. Maybe we're all just crazy. Yes. But you, you sort of have to have that as the thing that you've aggressively refused to believe so that you go deeper into the story. Right. Right. You know, Lovecraft is like, oh, it's just a coincidental lightning strike that probably had no Neorothotep in it at all. You're like, yeah, pull the other one, Howard. <laughs> Same thing is going on here. <laughs> so he brings up reading um, some of Blackwood ancient sorceries. 
Not as good as the Willows, he says. Another one that we haven't covered. Well, we covered the Willows. Yes, not Ancient Sorceries. You weren't a fan. No, I didn't like it. Ancient Sorceries we are going to do in September, so that's coming up. All right, there you go. He says Ancient Sorceries is kind of a witch cat story, so it gets him thinking about cats. It's a John Silence story. This is what H.P. Lovecraft said. Ancient Sorceries gives an almost hypnotically vivid account of an old French town where once the unholy Sabbath was kept by all the people in the form of cats. There's a witch cult, and when they have their coven meeting, they are tended in the form of cats. He goes into a description of the Porth's cats. Each of them has a lot of names. There's an orange male, Sasha, a.k.a. Butch, from Bush, which is short for Eddie LaBouche. So the cat is sometimes called Ed or Eddie. So, you know, (laughs) and its original name was Itty, which was short for Itty Bitty Kitty. I'm already, I mean, this is like what people tell you about their animals. And you're like, I love animals, but this is the most boring thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I do not care what their multiple. (laughs) So he really nails that feeling. But the only cat that hasn't got multiple names is Wada, which is Sar's cat. That's the only one that he brought to the relationship. The rest of them are his wife's cats. And Wada is the oldest of the cats and the meanest. It's the only cat that's ever bitten anyone. So it's, it's, it's a cat to be reckoned with. Jeremy writes that he can hear the TV quietly from the house, and then when they shut it off and do their evening hymns. And there's something significant that happens in this moment. Something odd just happened. I've never heard anything like it. While writing for the past half hour, I've been aware, if half-consciously, of the crickets. Their regular chirping can be pretty soothing, like the sound of a well-tuned machine. But just a few seconds ago, they seemed to miss a beat. They'd been singing along steadily ever since the moon came up, and all of a sudden they just stopped for a beat, and then they began again. Only they were out of rhythm for a moment or two, as if a hand had jarred the record or there'd been some kind of momentary break in the natural flow. They sound normal enough now, though. I think I'll go back to Entranto and let that put me to sleep. It may be the foundation of the English Gothics, but I can't imagine anyone actually reading it for pleasure. I wonder how many pages I'll be able to get through before I drop off. So that's the end of the July 11th journal entry. And I believe that is the moment some sort of other enters the story, mm-hmm. although the reader might not know it yet. The moments when the crickets stop is your whippoorwill moment from Dunwich Horror done with crickets. It's, you know, if you remember <laughs> yeah. when uh, Wizard Waitley dies and the whippoorwill's song changes, uh-huh. that's the exact same thing that happens. And the reason that it happens in... Lovecraft is because Yogg-Sothoth has brought his face near the Earth. That's the same thing that's happening. And we will see that it is not just necessarily his perception of something weird having happened at that exact moment. But I guess that sort of begins the maybe something is going on as opposed to just some guy huffing spider poison uh, <laughs> narrative. Some guy huffing spider poison was the alternative title to <laughs> We're running a little long here. The story is so amazing, but uh, we're going to find out if anything did happen in this moment next episode. For this one, we're going to have to close it down. I want to say thank you so much to Andrew Staten for being our reader. We're going to have him back again next time. And I want everybody to go and support Ken Heights. Amazing. I'm so excited about it. Kickstarter, which is called Tour to Lovecraft, The Destinations. But if you search Tour to Lovecraft on your Kickstarter search bar, it will bring you right there. Can't wait to have that in my grubby little hands. Please, everybody support that. Please, Chris, clean your hands. That's all we've got for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Kenneth Height. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.